0: And um, it's interesting when I do the sermons, especially on Mother's Day, because I always have this internal pressure to to make the sermon revolve around mothers, right? And so um, I'm always struggling, you know. So for example, like with this week's sermon, you know, we're going to talk about these large crowds coming to Jesus and then Jesus sending out the disciples. And so when I think about this, I'm like, okay, the large crowds come to Jesus. Moms, when you feel overwhelmed... Jesus did too. Don't worry, you know that. And then, you know, the, the scripture says that he tells his disciples to have a small boat ready, you know, to keep the people from crowding him. Moms, don't be afraid to escape in the minivan every once in a while, because when the crowd's overwhelmed. So I always have like, sorry, <laughs> I could do this. We could just go the whole way with just mom pointed uh, sermons, but anyway, I'll, I'll skip all that. But I do want to to moms all you to know that again, we, we honor you. We're thankful for you. Um, it's it's a special day for you. And so th- thank you for this. Um, and I hope that the Lord just brings you a word this morning during this sermon time or maybe through the music or the fellowship together. Um, and so I want to tackle these two sections this morning. Um, Jesus is dealing with the crowds and then he's going to choose his disciples and he's going to send his disciples out. Jesus is dealing with the crowds and his disciples. Mark chapter 3. 13 through 22 is where we will be. He just needed a, snack. He needed a snack? What's James doing? Is he just playing in the kids' room? Yeah, he's just there. Oh, Good for him. This looks wrong, the yeah, passage. 7... 7 through 19. Sorry about that. Mark chapter 3, 7 through 19. I'll start us off and then somebody want to jump in on a verse or two. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told us that I was to have a small boat ready for it to keep the people from crowding him, for he had healed many so that those with disease would push it forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Shut them up, forbidding them to identify him in public. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. <laughs> These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boen. It's like Bojangles. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alpheus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. Okay, excellent. So we get to this passage, and. Um, just a few comments on this as, as we kind of think through this passage and some things for us to think about and consider with what Jesus is doing here in this section. Um, this passage kind of, again, we finished a conflict narratives last week. Um, the conflict narratives start with Jesus healing the man who is paralyzed and the Pharisees say he's blaspheming, right? And then the conflict narratives end with Jesus healing the man who has the withered hand and the Pharisees go out and begin to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus right? That's Mark chapter 3, verse 6. The very next verse, Jesus says that, um, so here's, here's how it goes, 3, 6, and 7, the Pharisees go out and begin to plot with her, the Herodians how they might kill Jesus, and then Jesus immediately withdraws um, with his disciples to the lake. This passage, or this little section, this little transition here for me, um, was really something that stood out, that kind of jumped off the page to me. Because it made me pause in the sense that I see a real strength and weakness here by Jesus, right? A real strength and weakness by Jesus. Um, In the conflict narratives, again and again and again, as we know, Jesus is in the right, right? He's, He's not wrong. He was right to heal the man with the withered hand. He was right to heal the paralytic. He was right to do these things. The Pharisees are angry at him. They want to kill him and instead of confronting the pharisees and the teachers of the law he withdraws right often when we are in the right right we we our response is to stand up and jesus in this instance has the wisdom to stand down this reminds me of paul's verse one of the i think one of the probably most underrated verses in the bible where the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, because when I am weak, I am strong, right? Right? So this opening little kind of passage where the Pharisees want to kill Jesus, Jesus withdraws with his disciples to the lake. This real strength and weakness. I'll share one story. I think I've shared this before. Um, and I think this is, I think this is, I don't it's like I've heard it a couple secondhand different places. But um, a lot of you guys know I've really kind of grown to love and appreciate that author and writer he was a philosopher his name's Dallas Willard he was a, he was a philosophy professor at USC and so in one of the classes um he's teaching philosophy and like one of the students right just gets kind of real lippy with him at the end of the class this story is told by one of his Dallas's teachers assistants who's kind of passed this information along i almost feel like it's an urban legend but it's just you know so this student kind of like at the end of Dallas's lecture kind of you know just kind of like, you're wrong, you know, just kind of gives him the business, you're wrong, you're out of line, you know, kind of gets a little, and, you know, the student kind of goes, you know, goes off on him, and then Dallas just kind of looks uh, around at the class and says, okay, I I think that's enough for the day, thank you all for being here, and dismisses the class. And so this teacher's assistant, you know, kind of approaches Dallas after the class and says, like, Dallas... Why, why didn't you put that, you know, why didn't you put him in their place? Like, you know, he was clearly in the wrong. He was kind of acting like a fool. And Dallas said this one phrase that's always stuck with me. He said, I was practicing the discipline of not having the last word, right? I was practicing the discipline of not having the last word. And it, when I think about this, again, that kind of strength and weakness paradigm, right? Again, when, when we're in the right and we have the right, you know, it's just like we want to stand up. And it takes a great amount of wisdom that we can at least for a second here glimpse into Jesus's life and see that there is a real strength in weakness. I love this. It was probably the most important thing that stood out to me in this passage as I was thinking through this. Jesus just knows that people are out for him. And he says, instead of standing up, I'm going to stand down. And he goes with his disciples to the lake. So as he goes to the lake, Here's a map of where the lake is. He's at the Sea of Galilee, which is kind of up here in and around Galilee. And the Bible begins to list off the places of where people are coming from to go to be with Jesus. Okay, So when the Bible lists off places, it's always helpful for us to pay attention. Where those places are, why that might be. Why did John Mark want us to understand where these places were? right? So the first three he lists are Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea. Right, so Judea is this region, okay, this kind of green here, the region of Judea, you can see it right here, um and then obviously Jerusalem, right, that kind of capital, uh so to speak, the capital where the temple is, where this is kind of the holy city um Ijumia is kind of southern Judea, you can see it right here, um, but Ijumia is kind of southern, but this is this is kind of like this is kind of like the insider area, right this is still the heart of what was the promised land even though it's currently occupied by the romans but it's 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 kind of like i would say just just insider like all the insiders right so he has people coming again they're traveling from this area and they're coming up to the sea of galilee because they hear all about what jesus is doing and then the second list that we get here is the regions across the jordan tyre and sidon so up here these guys are highlighted in purple right Sidon and Tyre. And then the regions, so the Jordan River, here's the Sea of Galilee. The Jordan River kind of runs all the way down through here to the Dead Sea, right? So the regions across the Jordan would often refer to this area called the Decapolis, right here. Here's the Decapolis, right? So you kind of have these regions. So people from Judea, Idumea, and Jerusalem going up, people from this area going up to be with Jesus, Tyre and Sidon going up, um, A couple things specifically about this second set, right? The region across the Jordan, the Decapolis. um, We're going to get to this a little bit more. When Jesus is going to do a feeding here, he's going to feed the 4,000 in the Decapolis in this kind of region across the Jordan. The Decapolis, um, again, we'll do a little bit of a deeper dive when he does this in Mark chapter 8. The, The Decapolis would have been the 10 cities that were, kicked out when the Israelites, in in the book of Joshua, right, as the Israelites, you know, the Exodus, they wander for 40 years, and then the Israelites are camped here on this side of the Jordan River, as the Israelites kind of come in and take the promised land, right, again, the 10 cities that were kind of listed here as, as Joshua is leading the conquest of the promised land, The 10 cities get relocated out here. And this is why it's called the Decapolis, right? Deca, 10, polis, 10 cities, right? So you have the 10 cities that were conquered by the Jews and they are actually kind of kicked out and this kind of becomes their new region, their new area called the Decapolis. So you have people, right? Gentiles, outsiders, enemies, right? You have these people, they're going up to to be with uh, Jesus. And then you have these two cities, um, Sidon and Tyre. One of the interesting things about this one is they are unconquered cities, again, from the conquest of Joshua. So as the Israelites move into this area, they begin to conquer this whole promised land area. They kind of stretch up into this area, right? They push up into this area. And by the time they get to these two cities, they realize that they're pretty well-fortified city. Right, they're difficult to con- to conquer. So they just kind of wave. They just kind of like, yeah, they're they're far enough away. We don't got to pay attention to these cities. So these cities actually are never conquered, even though God had given them instructions to kind of conquer up into this area. They become, so to speak, a, a thorn in the side of the Israelites over over the years. Um, I do want to go here. This is from First Kings, right? First Kings chapter sixteen. So you have Ahab. Um, just a little context on this verse, right? So they move in, conquer King David. The the kingdom splits, right? You have the lower kingdom, Judea. You have the northern kingdom, Israel. The kingdom splits. You just have kind of all these fractured kings, kingdoms, right? You have all these, and the the kingdom really falls apart. You have this man, Ahab, right? Son of Omri did more open evil before God, King Ahab, than anyone yet. (laughs) I love how the message, this is Eugene Peterson, a new champion in evil is what Eugene Peterson translates King Ahab, right? He says it wasn't enough for him to copy the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. He went all out. First, by marrying Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal king of the Sidians, right? Again, going back to the Sidians, right? Up here. So Jezebel, which kind of, like between Jezebel and um, um what's the other, um, Delilah, right? Like those are like the two, like you hear those like names of the Bible, like, oh, those are the bad girls of the Bible, so to speak. So between, Je- like, so Jezebel is one of those ones. So he, met, this guy, one of, the, one of the Israelite kings marries, you know, a daughter, this girl Jezebel, king of the Sidians, and then begins serving and worshiping the god Baal. Um, Ahab builds a temple for Baal, in Samaria, we understand like that relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans, and then furnished it with an altar for Baal. Worse, he went on and built a shrine to the sacred whore Asherah, And then this, again, this great paraphrase from Eugene Peterson, he made the God of Israel angrier, angrier than all of the previous kings of Israel combined. Mm-hmm. Right? So again, going, why is John Mark mentioning these cities? Right, because we just hear like, okay, yeah. Why is John Mark mentioning these cities? You have Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, uh, the insiders, right? People who were on the on the inside of God. You have the Decapolis, those ten cities, the outsiders. You have Tyre, you have Sidon, you have the you have all those outsiders coming together um, to to be with Jesus. Um, and I think that one of the things that this passage kind of does, and it's Really, for us to take note of, is it brings together that those insiders and those outsiders, right? I I don't think that there was maybe in you know maybe when you close your eyes and you envision this picture of people coming to Jesus, right? You think of this you know very orderly line, everybody just waiting their turn. Jesus is just sitting there, touching, healing, driving out demons. It's probably not that. It's probably just masses of people pushing to Jesus. But again, if you're an Israelite, right, and you get close to these people, they make you unclean. But you have them all coming together. They're mixing together for healing and for deliverance, right? They mix together for healing and their deliverance. I wonder what those conversations were, as they were mixing together the insiders and the outsiders coming to Jesus and then telling stories afterwards of what they were delivered from. We get then to, I would call the demon verses, and I call it the demon verses part five, because already in the first three chapters of the Bible, we have all these mentions of Jesus Um delivering and speaking to and driving out demons. The the first one is the man in the synagogue. What happened, Jebby? Oh. Got paper. Oh. Man, I was really just in the flow of the sermon, too. I was feeling it, like things were really coming together. I could see, like, people were, man, we're going... I know, James. Ruined my sermon point message. So he delivers the demon-possessed man in the synagogue. He drives out many demons, won't let them speak. He's preaching. He goes around preaching in synagogues and driving out demons. And then here in 311, right? When the demons see him, they fall down before him. He doesn't let them speak. And then he actually gives the disciples authority to drive out demons. I, You know... I, We've kind of done a little bit of some—I don't want to say demon work—but we did a little bit of demon study when he's driving out demons and won't let them speak. And I want to circle back because I, you know, in that sermon, I want to kind of requote a guy named Tim Gombas, who I thought had such a great point on that, where when he he talks about demon possession, right? He says it's easy to think, um, or he he talks about demon possession before I get, get to the quote in in really just kind of mundane and normal ways, right? Um, it, it's, it's habitual, it's unexotic, it's just kind of, right? We think about The Shining or The Exorcist or these like kind of, you know, scary horror movies where demons are like screaming. But Gamba says that, you know, he says it's easy to think that anger and resentment are so common that demonic involvement seems outlandish. He says, yet consider how irrationally we behave when we cultivate resentment. We can hardly think straight, and our desires for revenge become overpowering. We have these phrases, what's got into him? Something has come over her. He says, we become violent and abusive, and the devastating, long-lasting, and far-reaching effects of unchecked anger and jealousy, he said, are awful. We could just say they're evil, and you know you can think about anger. You could fill in lust in that area. You could fill in consumerism, fear, busyness, control. It's just some of the mundane things that we just think are like just normal things. When left unchecked, right, they they just be, they take on this like almost demonic nature about us, right? So Jesus encounters these demons again. He gives his disciples to um, he gives his disciples a charge to cast out demons. Um, but again, he's delivering people. This word deliverance was another word that just came up to me again and again and again. And then from the lake, he goes up onto the mountainside. So when the Bible talks about the mountainside here, probably honestly, just there's little hills around the Sea of Galilee. He just goes up onto those little hills around the Sea of Galilee. And mountains are always going to be, anytime you see the word mountain in the Bible, um, they're always going to be those places of encounter with God. We did a sermon series on that a couple years ago. We did the trees, the water, and the mountains. We talked about the burning bush, right? Moses encounters a burning bush on the mountain. He goes back to that same spot. He receives the Ten Commandments on the mountain. Elijah meets with God on the mountain after defeating the prophets of Baal. Um, Jerusalem and you can kind of see this if you can see this is a little bit of a mountain range here Jerusalem the city itself sits on a mountain Jesus gives his most famous sermon on a mountain and here he um, goes up onto the mountainside and is where he's calling his 12 disciples right so again he's up on a, a so to speak a mountain he's calling his 12 disciples anytime we hear this it's important for us to understand um that Jesus is like, he's reconstituting Israel. He's recalling Israel. He's re almost naming Israel. And he's using these 12 high school aged boys, right? 15, 16, 17 year old boys to kind of be that new Israel, right? To, to launch this new movement. Here's the 12 tribes and he calls his 12 disciples and then we'll end here. Um, I, I just thought this was, I, I, I wanted to send here with, with this this morning. And then moms, will have a little bit of time right out on the patio for, for you. Um, Peter gets mentioned as the first, right? And we think about Peter's influence and what he does throughout the disciples. And sometimes we think about first in, in terms of importance, right? Peter being the most important disciple. Oh, here we go. Yep, hold on before... That would be fun. <laughs> is that it? Yeah, all right. I was waiting for more. So Peter becomes the first. And again, oftentimes we think about this in, in terms of importance. One of the commentators made, made this this great insight. I really like this. He said, not in the sense of importance, although Peter, he's an important disciple, right? Jesus is later going to say, on, you are Peter all." and Peter means rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Peter kind of becomes one of the leaders. Was that? But in some senses the commentator made this great point. (laughs) Seriously, it's the best. Um, He says that... um, he says that Peter, in some senses, is like an archetype, a representation, an example. And he's this great quote. He says Peter represents the heights, the heights of faith, and the depths of the denial. Right? Um, we could say the best and the worst, and yet Jesus still has enough faith in Peter. Um, okay, Molly, Ronnie, this one's for you guys because I know you see it when you're driving across the 22. There is a giant yellow billboard. And what's on that giant yellow billboard? Jesus Very close. I have seen it. I can't remember what. Is it on that side? It's, it's on that side. side. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I do know what you're about, but I can't what not, not to be disparaging to our Catholic friends. It's Catholic Jesus, right? Because he's got like the shining heart. And then it says, Jesus, I trust you right? Now is it making, clicking? So here's, I'll end with this. So we're driving across the 22 on Tuesday night after the mountain bike race. And I see this billboard and Alice, Alice, it was just Alice and I together in the car. And Alice reads it and says, Jesus, I trust you. Now we kind of read that as a statement of us saying that to Jesus, right? Jesus, I trust you. But Alice had this great little other way to read it where she read it as, You know, Jesus saying, I trust you, which, I mean, the the punctuation probably more leans towards the first interpretation of us saying it to Jesus, but Alice's interpretation of Jesus saying to us, I trust you. And, you know, I think that those are really the exact words we need to hear sometime, and especially when we think about the life of Peter, right? Time and time again, Jesus looks to his disciples, to his followers, And says, I trust you. Jesus knows exactly what Peter, like he knows the the road that Peter will walk down and yet he still calls him, right? He knows what he's going to do. He knows the best and the worst of Peter. He knows the best and the worst of every person sitting in this room. And yet he still has enough faith in it, in Peter, in us to say, I trust you with this, right? I trust you. And so, I don't know, maybe that's a word for somebody this morning that that not only do we have faith in God, right? Not only is that a big part of what we're doing here as a church, as somebody who's trusting in Jesus, but to understand that Jesus has enough faith and trust in you, and he believes in you, right? He really does. He really looks at each person and says, yeah, I trust you. I trust you. I know you're going to do the right thing. So... I think that should be enough for the morning. Is that a good, good place to stop? Um, let me close this in a word of prayer. And I, God, maybe the prayer would just kind of be like just a little bit of that flipping back and forth. Maybe there's some folks sitting here this morning and they're just, they're really just looking to you in a step of faith to trust you. And we're saying that from our hearts and from our stomachs and from the depths of who we are. Jesus, I trust you. I have faith in you. I have confidence in you. Maybe there's some folks sitting here this morning and they just almost need to hear your voice speaking over to them. Jesus is saying to you this morning, I trust you. I have confidence in you. I have faith in you. I believe in you. Sometimes we can get discouraged and, and, and frustrated, anxious. We can get disappointed in ourselves. And um, it's helpful to hear, just as, just as you called Peter, just as you called all these disciples, knowing yeah, that it wasn't going to probably be great. They're, they're not going to be these perfect examples all the time. But you trusted those guys. And that same trust still applies right here in this room. Thank you, God. Speak to us again that word you need us to hear this morning. Thank you for this time to be together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.